Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Nice to be with you once again. And 2020 is going to be a big year when it comes to the law, particularly new bills that are being passed by Parliament. We've got uh, the Land uh, Expropriation Bill, which is currently being looked at. Uh, we have free speech issues. Uh, there's the NHI that's also coming down the line. So a lot to uh, look forward to if you are a lawyer or a parliamentarian. But what does it mean for us average citizens. So we've got uh, in the studio today, I'm very excited to say, Advocate Mark Oppenheimer is going to be walking us through uh, these various things. Uh, I understand the land one is quite imminent, so we'll probably uh, be chatting about that today. I might have to call you in again, Mark, to speak about some of the others. Uh, but welcome to the program. Uh, just as a way of introduction, you're a, an advocate and uh, a regular commentator. You can read Mark uh, often in the Jewish Report uh, and on other places like Biz News uh, and Politics web. Mark Oppenheimer, welcome to the show and thanks for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so, so let's look at the land thing because that's uh, something that went kind of quiet for a while. Uh, everyone uh, kind of moved on to ESCOM, I guess. Uh, what what happened and where are we with what's going on legislatorily uh, on, the, on the land bill? Well, there's two big burning issues. The first one is um, the 18th Constitutional Amendment which will allow the state to expropriate land and improvements while paying nothing in compensation. Now, that term and improvements is vital. Um, Much of the debate that's gone on for the last uh, two years has been about land, and people have assumed that that refers to uh, rural land or farmland. Your house is an improvement on your land. If you look at um, the way that the amendment bill is drafted, There is no distinction drawn in the bill between urban land and rural land. This endangers um, land owned, land and homes and um, other kinds of fixed property attached to land uh, throughout the country. It's going to affect people that are black and white, rich and poor. Now, there is a very short deadline for submissions. Um, The public has up until the 31st of January to let their voices be heard. Um, I produced a video which has been doing the rounds, I gather on YouTube, WhatsApp, and Facebook, encouraging people to make submissions. Um, and so they can write to Parliament at uh, section25 at parliament.gov.za. They can also use um, the DSL Africa website, which has a specific landing page um, on expropriation and on the 18th Amendment. So we'll, we'll get to the, the details of how people can make submissions, because I think it is very important uh, in just a bit. But I do want to drill down a little bit. So when we're talking about this bill... Is it specifically about changing the constitution or is it just a new law that is going to be passed by the parliament? Yes, so I think this is where part of the confusion comes in is that there is also an expropriation bill. Um, and the expropriation bill, if passed into legislation, becomes an act that would be the operating legislation which would then be used to take people's, um, take people's property um, into the hands of the state and pay them nothing in certain circumstances. But in order to allow that, you first have to change the constitution. So it's a twofold process. There are submissions for the expropriation bill, which are closing uh, in the middle of February. Um, but to give you an idea, I've described this as the 18th constitutional amendment. 
Um, this is the first one that affects the Bill of Rights. So we have never changed the Bill of Rights in South Africa's history, ever. Um, if you look at the other 17 amendments, they tend to be of a rather procedural nature. Um, one was to allow floor crossing, the other one was to remove it. They changed provincial boundaries, they changed the names of courts, that sort of thing. So we are dealing with something that's dramatic. Now, let me make this perfectly clear. We come from a dark history in South Africa of land dispossession. The state during apartheid and during the colonial era took people's land um, unjustly, and those people deserve restitution. And I think all of us must agree, Jews in particular, if we think about you know, what happened in Nazi Germany, um, Jews had their property taken from them unjustly and have been engaged in the reparations process, um, and a lot of Jews have been paid out, and we think that that's just, that they should get their either their land restored to them or they should get financial compensation, um, and that is what justice requires. But then we have to ask, well, what has been done thus far? So I can tell you some of the good news, which is that between 1995 and 2014, we had a uh, land claims process. So people could um, go to court. They could show that um, their land was taken from them, and uh, they could then receive either the land back or money. And 1.8 million individuals um, received compensation, and 90% of them chose the money. So the idea that there is this hunger for land um, is is really not borne out in the facts. Um, people want money for a reason, which is that you can use money to pay for your debts, um, to start a business, or buy a piece of land in an area that you want it. So what's interesting as well is when you poll South Africans and ask them, you know, what are the burning issues, um, 40% say unemployment. Only 2% say land reform. So what we have here is this sort of... Um, this political question which has arisen, not because of the populists, but because of populist politicians who have sort of run a blood and soil agenda to say, get your land back, um, when actually that's not what people want. People want a growing economy. They want employment. Now, the danger of changing our constitution to allow for expropriation of our compensation is that you end up destabilizing the economy. Um, it's not just those that are going to have their land taken from them. You know, South Africa currently is a beneficiary of a GOA, which is a, a piece of legislation in America that gives preferential access to American markets if you're in Africa. And um, America, we, we currently export 100 uh, billion rands worth of goods to America every year. Now, one of the requirements to be a, a beneficiary of a GOA is that um, you maintain protection of property rights. If we do this, we would clearly be um, breaching that obligation. Um, so, okay, I, I think that there's because there's a few issues here that uh, I just want to unpack. So, what you're saying is not that necess- that there's a difference actually between land restitution and land reform, right? So, land that's been stolen. What you're saying is uh, from people is is there's been a process. Uh, I'm sure that it's better or worse, but it's actually undertaken to, to hand people uh, back land that's been stolen and that. Uh, and that you're supportive of and, and have seen a process through. Where you're more concerned is how this particular land bill is being used to drive land reform, which is land which may or may not have been stolen, uh, going to different uh, people without being paid for it if, if the government takes it. Yeah, so land reform en- encompasses, it's a, it's a weasel word, because you have the restitution on the one hand. As I mentioned, that 1.8 million individuals you know, were compensated. Of the cases brought during that period, 95% were resolved. So we've done quite a good job on land restitution thus far, and the remaining cases could be dealt with in a similar fashion. Um, but land reform has this other category, which is land redistribution. 
um, which is to try and seek some sort of uh, supposedly equitable balance so that people own uh, own land in proportion to their demographic numbers. Um, a, a policy has just come out um, which which tries to sort of call for this uh, uh, big redistributive line that people should be owning um, parts of the country based on their population share. Now, as a Jew, you should start to feel very alarmed when you hear that because there are 60,000 Jews in South Africa. Uh, we don't make up a percent. We're a lot smaller than that. So if the idea is that, well, there should be a cap on ownership based on your demographic numbers, we've heard that before. Um, you know, that you had, you know, the Nazis, one of the first things that they did was introduce um, caps on how many Jews would be allowed to, to teach at universities. Um, so they said, you know, the Jews are outstripping their numbers. Look how many Jews there are in academia in proportion to their numbers. Um, it just happens to be the case that some groups uh, prosper in some areas and, you know, don't in others. Um, it's not that something unjust has occurred necessarily if you, if you own property disproportionately to your population size. But in terms of the, the – this is a policy question, and I'll get back to the, the legal one in a minute because I do think that uh, you know, the, what you're talking about, a go and whatever, is something we have to take very seriously. But from a general perspective as South Africans, we know that – the restitution process is kind of only from 1913 where there was a specific government focus on on dispossessing black people of their land. But you have this much longer process uh, before that uh, where people were living on land and they got thrown out. There were various wars and whatever. And that seems to have contributed to a kind of skewed, racialized um, property ownership uh, map, if you like. So the first thing is, is that a correct Assumption. Do we see that uh, some groups are owning vastly uh, much more than, than they should be in inverted commas? Uh, and, and is it a worthwhile policy process for the government to think about evening that out in general? Does, does it make a, a, a good politics or good economics apart from the exp- expropriation aspect? So I'll give you a couple of responses. First one is um, to reason by analogy. So in Southern California – 90% of donut stores are owned by Cambodians. Okay, Cambodians are a very, very small population group in Southern California. What happened was that um, a Cambodian fleeing the Khmer Rouge um, came out to America. He, he worked in a donut store cleaning the floors, um, eventually worked his way up, and he managed to buy his own store. And he used the profits of that store to bring out uh, other Cambodians who had been massacred by the Khmer Rouge, and he helped them start businesses. And they wound up dominating um, that industry, as I said, by 90%, far disproportionate to their numbers. There is nothing unjust about that whatsoever. The fact that this particular group has done well in some sector is uh, not something that ought to trouble us. Uh, you find that certain population groups happen to prosper in certain areas, and that's okay. The other one is that there's some very slanted reporting on this. So I think the number that has often been reported is that um, of um, farming land owned by private individuals, 70% of them are white. So that looks kind of, you go, oh, sure, that's, that's quite an alarming thing. Um, here's the problem, is that most farms are not owned by private individuals. They're owned by companies. Um, that if you're going to run a big farming endeavor, you probably want it in a corporate structure. So um, we don't know what the race of those companies are, 
Um, in other words, companies don't have a race. Um, but there's good reason to believe that there could be many black shareholders or directors of those companies. Um, we also know that the state um, owns a fair chunk of land. So there's a way to sort of skew the numbers in a certain way that make it look like there's some kind of disproportionate uh, racial ownership when, in fact, that's not the case at all. So I think we should be wary of that. On 1913, there's a very interesting question there. So part of that is um, our constitution says that that will be the cutoff date. Um, so there's uh, – in other words, it's entrenched in our constitutional law. That's when the 1913 Land Act came in. Um, you might think that's the result of compromise um, to agree on a date. But there's another good moral reason, which is that um, you're limiting it to basically within living memory. Um, in other words, very few people are going to be still alive today that were there in 1913. Okay, that has to be over 100 years old. Um, so one of the good moral arguments for having a cap on these things is that Let's say you lived in England where it's quite easy to work out what your ancestral um, chart was and you could go back a thousand years. Um, and you could say, well, it turns out that if we go back far enough, um, the Normans came in and they stole a whole bunch of you know, land from my, um, my ancestor a thousand years ago and I want it back. Well, the counter arguments say, well, look, it may be that your ancestor was, uh, was dispossessed, but it's not clear given the passage of time that you would have wound up with it. You've got so many successive ancestors who could have unsold it, who could have um, traded it, who could have gambled it away, you know, um, that you've got so many luck factors that are going to play a role. That's very different from the immediate thievery case. In other words, you stole my car, I want it back now. Um, there's, there's no intervening factor. Um, and the argument is the further you go back in history, the more intervening factors there are, and that should be taken into account. Um, so while 100 years might be arbitrary to some extent, there are some other good reasons why you might want to have a cap on that basis. You'd also, you can have all these destabilizing forces if you've got to try and work out, you know, well, which warring faction was involved in this piece of land, you know, who does it really belong to, how many times was stolen, having some line in the sand is economically useful as well. So just to talk about this macro aspect just for one more more point. You know, it seems to me as though the, the government and the ANC in particular has not really thought about what role it wants to have land access play in the economy. This thing gets a very small percentage of the budget every year. Uh, you know, other things seem to be a huge priority just if you, if you look at how the government spends its money. Uh, if the government's argument is that there is some economic value or some just value to, to having a more, let's call it equitable distribution of land, even if, you know, whatever, we can disagree on what, whatever those statistics are. Uh, do you think that that uh, is, is a valid point, that there is something important to think about when, when we think about land ownership in, in South Africa and access to land? Is that something that we're not paying attention to enough as South Africans, which is partly why the populists have been able to get hold of this question? Well, as I say, when you poll South Africans, it sounds like they don't have a hunger for land. They have a hunger for employment. So that plays a, an enormous factor when you're working on a policy position. You know, what is it that people actually want? Um, when I uh, presented in parliament, one of the parliamentarians said, well, we acknowledge that the people don't want the land. They want the money. But they shouldn't want that. Um, and that seems to sort of get things asked about face. You know, you're a representative of the people. You should be representing their interests, not trying to push your own particular agenda down their throats. Um, but if you say, like, well, maybe there are people who want more land distribution and the government should be allocating more, to give you an idea that actual budget figure is 0.3% in 2018, it's a rounding error uh, on our total budget. Um, so 
if government did feel like this is a priority, you really could spend more money on that area if you thought so. The difficulty that we have is the line they've taken is so radical, it could so thoroughly destabilize our economy, um, that it'll just have all these negative impacts. So, first of all, you know, where does your budget come from? It comes from taxpayers. Um, our, the number of people who pay tax in South Africa is tiny. So, 55 million South Africans, only 5 million of them are registered taxpayers, okay, for income tax. The top, um, I think 500,000 of those people, so the 10%, pay something like 83% of the income tax. So if those people left the country um, because they say, well, I don't, my property rights are not going to be secured here, it means that you're eroding the tax base. What you want to rather be doing is growing the tax base. So we're going to come to that uh, uh, just after the break. We're going to go check out the adverts. And when we come back, we're speaking again to advocate Mark Oppenheimer about this new bill in front of Parliament uh, to amend the Constitution. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. Back with 101.9 High FM, I am Benji Shulman, and we are speaking today to Mark Oppenheimer. He is uh, an advocate and uh, commentator and uh, focusing a lot at the moment on this land bill, uh, land expropriation bill, which is currently going through uh, uh, Parliament and uh, what are the implications for it. So, Mark, let's actually drill into that uh, side of things uh, for a bit and actually see. So at the moment, the big fight, so to speak, in Parliament is going to be around changing the the Constitution and allowing for for uh, expropriation, in other words, the state taking land without compensation, so they don't have to pay you. Now, some jurists, people like L.B. Sachs and a number of others, have said that there's not actually any reason for this bill to come through in the first place uh, because the Constitution already allows for uh, expropriation without compensation. What is what is your take on 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 the fact that the the constitution actually is already sort of fairly well made for for this process? Yes. All right. So to give you a bit of clarity on that front, what the constitution does is it allows for expropriation. Okay, and, which means, in other words, that the state can go and acquire property for individuals without their consent. Now, that's alarming in itself, but something that all states do, and I'll tell you why. So the idea is that sometimes states have to do public things for a, for a public good, like build a road. Um, and they need to go through privately held land, and the person who owns that land refuses to sell it. So what they do then is they take it and they pay that person out. Um, so the international law standards that you pay prompt an adequate compensation. Our constitution currently says that you pay what is just and equitable, and that you take five factors into account. The first is the market value. You can then adjust up or down based on the other factors. So um, how is the land currently being used? How was it acquired? So if it's, you're dealing with a direct land thief, you have very good reason to pay them nothing in compensation. The other is, did you receive a state subsidy to acquire this land? Um, so we know, for example, if let's say your land is worth a million rand, but you received a million rand from the state to buy it, well, they cancel each other out. Again, we could pay you nothing. So there are going to be these cases where the state can, using the current uh, constitution, pay people nil in compensation, either because it has no market value or the other factors cancel the market value out. Um, and that's going to be just and equitable in those circumstances. Now, the difficulty is that this amendment will bypass those five factors. What it says is that 
national legislation will be passed which will determine which factors will be taken into account to pay null compensation. So instead of looking at the ones that are in the Constitution, you have a look at a statute. Now, why does that matter? Well, as I say, the Bill of Rights has never been amended before. Part of that is because it's very hard to do it. You require um, two-thirds of parliamentarians to vote in favor of the change. Give an idea that ANC currently have 57%. They cannot do it on their own. But to pass a bill or to, to pass a piece of legislation and, and to become an act, you need 50% plus one. So the difficulty that you have here is that you wind up making the Constitution subservient to legislation, which is easy to pass. And it may be that legislation that gets passed, uh, at the moment the legislation would be the expropriation bill, which has some serious concerns in it. But let's assume you could stomach those concerns. You say, well, okay, that's what the, that's what those are the circumstances in which uh, land will be taken away. One of them is um, land held for purely speculative purposes, which uh, which worries me. I think when you think about what speculating means, um, you put your money in the stock market because you hope that it will go up. You can be accused of speculating. When you bought your house, you hoped it would increase in value. You could be accused of speculating. But assume you could live with those factors. There's nothing stopping a future regime from passing even more onerous legislation in a very easy way, and they can do it on their own. Because they, because you wouldn't need the two-thirds majority to change the Bill of Rights. You would just have the 51, 50 plus 1 percent majority in Parliament, uh, and you could just change the legislation. Exactly. So what someone needs to ask themselves is this. If you say, if I'm going to change the law, think of yourself as, uh, as an ironsmith crafting a weapon. And you've crafted this weapon, you've put it down on the table. How comfortable are you with your enemies being able to pick up that weapon and bludgeon you to death with it? You know, it, it may be that we, that the ANC aren't going to be in power in 15 years time. Um, that you could very well have a different party in power. How comfortable are you with the EFF being able to use this weapon? Or how comfortable are you with, um, Didi Mabuza using this weapon, if not Ramaphosa? Um, so legislators should always be very, very careful about the legislation that they craft because it can be used against them. Now, what about when we talk about property? You know, we, we've spoken a lot about land, rural land, but there's a sense in which some people have said that this is actually potentially broader than just uh, land ownership because it talks about property ownership and could actually end up applying to all sorts of things that are not uh, that are not restricted to rural land, uh, anything that you own, really, whether it's uh, shares or cars or, or whatever it is. I, is there a broader impact that this legislation could potentially have? I'll explain that. So... With regards to the constitutional amendment, firstly, the constitution itself, section 25 is our property clause, talks about property, okay, and talks about land as being a type of property. So we know that, as you say, property refers to a range of different categories. This particular amendment um, refers to land and improvements. Now, as I say, an improvement could include a structure that you build on it, like a house. Um, or if you're a farmer, if you cultivate that land and you put crops there, that's going to be an improvement on it. Um, there is no distinction drawn between urban and rural, so it could affect um, both sets of land. So I would think that if you own a house in a suburb, um, this this change will affect you. But does it affect your car or your shares? Um, the constitutional amendment doesn't, but the expropriation bill does refer to property in the broader class. Um, but that's with regards to expropriation, not expropriation without compensation. So it might be that the government says, look, we're going to take your patent, um, for whatever reason, but you're going to pay you out for it. So let's just quickly talk about some of the implications because you have alluded to them uh, in, in a number of ways. And, and, and people, you know, I think when you talk about this thing, they think about uh, Umpit somewhere in the northwest who, who, who was a farmer and then he's going to 
not be a farmer anymore and who cares? Uh, you know, if we're being cynical. But first they came for the communists. First and they I said nothing. <laughs> but, but I, but the question I have is, is actually, is this more broad than that? Because I, I don't know that people always have an appreciation for how important uh, the right, uh, you know, secure tenure of your land once you've uh, bought it is for, for the economy to function. Uh, do we have cases or understandings about this being done in other places where what the effect on the economy has been? Uh, yes, we do. So um, what's interesting about the case is we don't have to peer very far um, back in history or far geographically. So we can look at what's happened in Zimbabwe and Venezuela. So we know that in Zimbabwe they eroded property rights, and it wasn't just those people who had their farms invaded um, who suffered. Um, it was all Zimbabweans. Their, their unemployment rate reached 90%. They had the world's worst case of hyperinflation. There are $100 trillion banknotes. We have millions of Zimbabweans who were driven into exile living in South Africa because their economy was annihilated. Um, in Venezuela at the moment, you have 2.5 million people who are trying to exit the country. Um, their, their hyperinflation is through the roof. Um, so there are serious concerns. Um, and as I say, when we... We don't just have to sort of imagine, um, you know, far distant lands. Um, this is, these are things that are happening right now. Um, you know, if you want to go and um, buy a box of tomatoes in, in Venezuela, you need to arrive with wheelbarrows full of notes. Um, so the difficulty is this, is that South Africa has this belief that we're an exceptional nation because we've managed to do so many exceptional things against the odds. So we, we avoided a civil war, um, you know, through a peaceful transition process. Um, but there comes a point in time when you have to say, you know, this is a bad idea that has been tried, you know, in other countries and it has failed citizens dramatically and we ought not to try it here. And it's fundamentally because if you're asking people to put money into a business venture or into a farm or into anything – uh, and they can't be certain that uh, they're going to get a return on it or that their money is going to be safe, then they're going to stop investing uh, and won't put their money in. And that's what we actually need in the country to grow jobs and, uh, and, and employment is actually people putting money in. And that's the, that's the real issue here. It's not actually a, only about land per se, although that's obviously important, and theft, which is obviously important as well. But it's actually – it's just like pouring sand into the engine of the economy. Yes. So on, on two fronts, I mean, the one is that, you know, when we think about foreign investors, uh, we assume, well, their choice is to invest in South Africa or not. No, their, their choice is to invest anywhere in the world. Uh, and what they care about is not helping South Africa prosper. It's making sure that their investments grow. Uh, and they're involved in a cold calculating exercise. Um, some of those funds are just mandated based on our credit rating. So they have very good reason not to put money in a country where their assets can be confiscated. The other one is locals. So we know that a whole bunch of businesses are just not investing because they're, they're unsure what's going to happen. Um, the amount of damage that's been done just through this discussion without even changing the constitution is gigantic. You know, if you look at what's happened to residential property prices um, the last couple of years, I mean, it's catastrophic. Um, you know, if you look at um, Santon, Santon sort of from the exterior looks like a, a, a buzzing metropolis. But there's a 30% um, vacancy rate in those buildings, you know. So, and part of this is because people are very concerned about investing. Um, if you have a climate where it's unclear whether your property is going to be protected, well, then you have very good reason to put your money offshore or to just hit the pause button. Now, the, these are obviously all big issues that are, are being played out at the moment. Uh, or 
What can ordinary people do to, to stop this thing? Is it is it a fait accompli? Do we have to rely on the constitutional court? Uh, is there a way to, to say, look, this is really not such a good idea and we have to get involved to prevent it? Yes. So I think, firstly, it's not a fait accompli. Um, I, I've been involved in um, doing submissions to parliament for a number of years, um, and there have been some amazing victories. So, for example, the uh, hate speech bill, which would have made it punishable by 10 years in jail to have made fun of the president, um, incredibly draconian piece of legislation, um, has been stopped because of civil society. So I wrote a submission, and a large number of other people wrote submissions. Um, and as far as we can see, that that bill is on ice. Um, so it is possible to stop pernicious legislation. I think it's important that if people want to make their voices heard, that they do so now. There is a very small amount of time available. So we have up until the end of January to put in submissions. As I say, you can write a personal submission to Parliament, which is at – you write an email to section25 at parliament.gov.za or use the DSL Africa site, which has a landing page on the 18th Amendment. And there you can you can say whether you're in favor of the amendment or against it, and you can explain your reasons why. We know that on the DSL Africa site at the moment – 60,000 people have contributed, um, and 88% of them have said that um, they don't want the Constitution changed. These are all very important for persuading parliamentarians that the average South African cares about protecting their property rights, cares about a, fl- a flourishing economy, and doesn't want the Bill of Rights changed for the first time. Well, there you go. Uh, go and have a look at that. Have your voice heard because whether you like it or not, this is an issue that's going to affect you. Mark, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show and explaining to us this important issue. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. Mark Oppenheimer there, advocate and uh, regular commentator on constitutional affairs.